Today's podcast is sponsored by Doit. Reduce your cloud spend by improving your cloud efficiency with Doit, an award-winning strategic partner of Google Cloud and AWS. Find out more at doit.com. That's D-O-I-T dot com. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today Ned and I are going to begin a series of cloud essentials. What is cloud essentials, you might ask? Well, some of the fundamentals that you might want to know about if you are working in the cloud. And today's topic are VPCs, because Ned, I don't think it gets more essential than VPCs. It, they are a pretty foundational building block of pretty pretty much anything else you're going to do when it comes to cloud computing, at least from an infrastructure perspective. So it's probably a good place to start. Now, VPCs, um, we're going to be talking about them from an AWS-centric uh, perspective. If you look at Azure, if you look at GCP and a lot of the other public cloud providers that are out there, they may have slightly different terminology, but the conversation today that Ned and I are going to have is focused on the way AWS looks at VPCs and the terminology that they use. That means if you go to Azure GCP, you're going to find very similar concepts and maybe even the same terms, but also probably some different terms that mean the same thing as what AWS called it <laughs> by and large as I was doing my reading. That's what I came across with. Would you agree with that, Ned? Yeah, I would agree with that at a very high level. Of course, once you get down into the intricacies of how each cloud provider has implemented the networking, there are some differences and some of them are more important than others. Uh, for instance, the concept of availability zones, which we'll get into in AWS, has much broader implications for AWS than the way that availability zones are implemented in, say, something like Microsoft Azure. So I can speak to that as we get to that portion of looking at VPCs. Let's start at the beginning then. What is a VPC? VPC is an acronym that stands for Virtual Private Cloud. This is your slice of the cloud provider's infrastructure. And something to keep in mind here is that you are on shared infrastructure with other people. That is the point of the cloud. Now, security from those other people is guaranteed by the provider, but you're still going to have the noisy neighbor problem. If you were a VMware administrator, you're, you're familiar with this problem. There could be a virtual machine on a host that's just chewing up memory and CPU and impacting other virtual machines that are also running on that hypervisor. You can have that problem in the cloud. It is, again, shared infrastructure. Uh, a VPC, virtual private cloud, it is your own little world. And inside that world, Ned, you, you launch stuff. <laughs> That's true. Well, first, you have to structure the VPC in some way. You could think of the VPC itself as like an empty shell. And now we're going to populate that shell with things. It's like a home. And you got to decorate your home. And what do you do first with a home? Well, you have to divide it into sections, right? And just like you'd have rooms in a house, you would create subnets inside of a VPC to contain the network interfaces that will attach to that VPC. I kind of like that analogy. We could probably run with it. <laughs> well, as a network guy, I, I liked this as I was doing my, uh, my reading and pondering about this topic. Yeah, VPCs are very network-centric. Um, you have, again, uh, subnets that you're assigning to things, and you're putting those subnets into different places. And then, uh, as you put it, Ned, it's your, it's, it's your home. Uh, you can have multiple VPCs that uh, interconnect with one another if you need to expand or you're trying to design for a certain application availability and things like that. In the Amazon world, in the AWS world, they give you 
regions, which are globally distributed, different uh, parts of the globe in uh, upon which or inside of which you can launch your VPCs. Inside of a region, you have availability zones. So Amazon for w- would give you a best practice of if you need a highly available application, you would have VPCs in different availability zones and you would have an application running in different availability zones. So that in case the data center running availability zone A falls over, has a catastrophic problem, your app is still running because you've got a different copy of it in availability zone B that, of course, would not be impacted because how does Amazon describe these availability zones? Inside of a region, again, multiple AZs, they are physically separated and isolated from one another. They are interconnected using low latency, high throughput, and highly redundant networking. So these AZs are are connected very quickly one to another so you can share data between them when everything's working well. They are considered more highly available, fault-tolerant, and scalable than a traditional single or multiple data center infrastructure. So they're saying, our AZs are better than your DCs, feeble humans (laughs) that build your on-prem. Just give it up and move it all to the cloud in our AZs because they're so much better. And then, of course, from a design perspective, you would spread those critical workloads across VPCs and then launch them in separate uh, availability zones. Uh, now, Ned, I do have a, a question here, since you worked with a lot of customers that have maybe had to face this. As I've thought about different applications I've supported over the years, a lot of them wouldn't support this architecture because they're not designed in a way that you could just spread them out across availability zones very easily. Well, so let's back up a little bit and refine the terminology because okay. a VPC exists within a region, but not a specific availability zone. Yes. So when you create your VPC, you do have to select a region where that VPC exists. But the thing that actually resides in a particular availability zone is a subnet. So each subnet is assigned to one and only one availability zone. So if you have an application that has fault tolerance within the application, which is usually accomplished by having multiple nodes of a cluster behind a load balancer or something along those lines, then best practice would be to create at least two subnets in two different availability zones and place some of your nodes in the first subnet and some of your nodes in the second subnet and then balance your traffic across those two AZs or do like an active passive kind of setup. There's some cost implications, which we can get into later, but that would be from a fault tolerance perspective, what would be considered best practices inside a single VPC. So here's a question that I have about that. In that scenario where I've spread pool members, if you will, into multiple uh, subnets distributed in different availability zones, Uh, as Amazon describes, connected using those low latency, high throughput, highly redundant networking connections so that they can all see each other and so on. Where's my load balancer in this scenario? And is it also benefiting from uh, high availability of some kind? Yes. So Amazon offers two different types of load balancers. They're both under the moniker of Elastic Load Balancer. And this is a managed service that AWS handles. And so you don't have to you don't have to worry about what's happening under the covers, really. They're handling it for you. And essentially, there's two types. One is a network load balancer that runs at layer four. So that can do basic network load balancing, but it won't inspect the contents of the traffic at a layer seven level with HTTPS looking at requests, doing modification of requests and whatnot. 
the other load balancer type is the application load balancer. And so that has a little more intelligence built into it. It can parse a query and determine which host to send that query to. Either of those is capable of handling multiple availability zones. And like I said, since it's a managed service from AWS, you just point it at the subnets it should connect to, and it handles the rest. I like the way you said, I don't have to worry about it because Amazon takes care of it. I like that. I still going to worry <laughs> well, about it, though. That's just that's just who I am. Yeah, you can. And honestly, you can bring your own load balancer if that's the kind of thing you want to do. But that can be more challenging. You'd probably end up going with a network virtualized appliance that is from one of the major load balancer companies out there. Or you can set up your own load balancer using something like uh, Nginx can do load balancing. Uh, HA proxy or HA proxy can do load balancing. So you can also set that up yourself, but that's going to require additional work on your part. There's one reason that I can think that I would want to do what you just described, and that is I'm so embedded in my legacy infrastructure from on-prem because I was an F5 user, let's say, mm. that I want to keep my operationals, uh, my operations exactly the same as they've been for forever. And so then I would take that load balancer and put it into the cloud. Other than that, I would rather use what Amazon gives me. In the assumption that it's going to make my life easier in the long run if I just bite the bullet, figure out how this this load balancer I haven't used before perhaps works, and uh, and then leave my uh, F5, A10, whatever behind. I'm assuming cost wise, it's it's at least a wash. I'm, I'm I'm assuming going to an Amazon load balancer wouldn't be vastly more expensive. I mean, F five, A ten, et cetera. They've never been. They've always been reassuringly expensive. So I don't think there'd be a big yes, uh, cost change. You would still need to deploy uh, an EC two instance, uh, yeah. which is their Elastic Compute service. You would still need to deploy an EC two instance and have that running and have it be beefy enough to support the A10 or, or the F5 load balancer, right? And then you'd still be paying the licensing cost of that load balancer to F5 or A10. So chances are the application load balancer, or if you can use the NLB, the network load balancer, either of those options is going to be cheaper than running your own EC2 instances and managing the load balancing yourself. And as you just said, and then I don't have to, quote unquote, worry about it because Amazon's going to keep it up and running for me. And I'm, I can rely on them and their infrastructure to keep that uh, virtual appliance functioning for me. So, Ned, OK, Absolutely. we just went down a rabbit trail with, uh, with some application architecture <laughs> stuff. But it was one of those common things that I think a lot of people face as they begin to move to cloud. How, how am I going to take this thing I've been delivering on-prem across my active-active or active standby data center architecture and, and, and mirror that in the cloud? And the answer is, well, maybe you don't want to mirror it. Or maybe you want to take the principles that took you to build the current architecture you have, rethink how you would fulfill those goals, but do it in a, in a cloud way. Um, how would you do it so that it makes good sense? You're still accomplishing everything that you want to, but you're doing it, not replicating what you did on premise, uh, on premises, but then do it, uh, in the cloud, taking advantage of all the tooling that, uh, Amazon is giving you. So to back up for a second, we started talking about VPCs, uh, mm -hmm. a virtual private cloud, your slice of the cloud providers infrastructure. Uh, Amazon has VPCs you can launch in different regions all over the world. Inside of those regions, there are multiple availability zones. 
And as you begin to carve out your subnets, your uh, networking layer of where you're going to stand up these VPCs, you can put those subnets in different places. They don't have to be in different places, but you can. Uh, and you would put them ideally in different availability zones so that if Amazon has an outage, that never happens, Ned. I mean, we know that never <laughs> happens. Then you not. can survive uh, that outage. So, Ned, let's talk about uh, connectivity more and subnets and uh, and all of that. Sure. Because uh, in my thinking, again, a VPC is a network-centric construct. Um and inside of those, uh, inside of that VPC, you stand up these subnets because you got to have an IP network that resources you deploy in the VPC can use. It's really the uh, one of those fundamental building blocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazon does support IPv4 and IPv6. You can bring your own IP. They do support that, which is a, for some of this is a somewhat of a recent thing, particularly with IPv6. I know that was in the last year and a half or so that I think they began to add the IPv6 bring your own IP functionality. But, you know, that means you can, if you uh, have your own IPv4 or IPv6 block that's been assigned to you by a provider or from the regional internet registry, you can announce those from Amazon. It will allow that public IP address space to be announced from your, uh, from your VPC. Uh, so, so Ned, that's the, that's the building block there with, uh, with subnets. Do you have more, uh, guidance or thoughts about, um, public versus uh, private IPs or any best practices that you recommend when beginning to stand up your subnets? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're carving out your network address space, you want to be fairly deliberate about it and also understand that a certain portion of the network address space is reserved by Amazon for each subnet and each VPC. So they reserve, I believe it's the first four addresses in any network range for their own personal use. Uh, one is to serve up, well, one is to act as the gateway <laughs> to get out of that subnet, right? Uh, one is to act as a DNS server, and then on the other two are reserved for future use, whatever that for future use might be. So you have to take that into account when you're trying to, if you're trying to be real conservative about your IPv4 address space usage, you still have to account for the fact that you're not getting access to the entire range of addresses, especially if you're trying to go real small. So just bear that in mind as you're planning out your, your address layout. If you're going with IPv6, man, you got all the space in the world. <laughs> Do what you want. <laughs> network administrators listening to this would go, oh, that sounds familiar because as a network admin, if you're laying out an IPv4 block particularly, you you would have done this. You'd, ha- you'd have this habit. You know there's going to be an IP address that's reserved for the gateway to get out of the subnet. And you know that there's a couple that you might need for something like uh, you know a hot standby routing protocol or something where you're going to reserve a few extra addresses for that. And then you might want to reserve one or two because like, I think I'm going to need to drop a new route in here at some point. And I'm going to have to transition over. I'm going to want to reserve a couple of addresses for myself there if I ever get that project done and so on. So that way of thinking should be very familiar to folks. Um, well, let's talk about um, other connectivity then from within that subnet because you, you, build, the, you build the subnet, but then you got to from that subnet to other things like the internet to other VPCs. You might want to connect to uh, your on-premises network or to you know, VPN, like a B2B VPN tunnel kind of thing. You might have direct connect circuits if you're you know, a very large shop and you're spending all that money for a direct connect and so on. So, so let's walk through these, Ned. Uh, to connect to the internet, you need an internet gateway. 
pretty pretty simple construct there. Is there any magic to it? Not magic per se. It really is what it says on the tin. It's a gateway to the internet. And traditionally what you would do is for your public subnets, you would set the default route for those public subnets to send their traffic to the internet gateway and out it goes. Yay! The internet gateway does not do any sort of NAT. There's no network address translation happening with the internet gateway. So any instances that want to use that internet gateway already need to have a public IP address associated with them. And that could either be an IPv4 elastic IP or an IPv6 address. If they don't have that, then they could send traffic out the net, the internet gateway, but they'll never be able to get the response back. Right. Okay. So, well, and I would guess Amazon's actually going to drop it if they see private address space heading out through the internet gateway because they know it's not <laughs> routable. If they're doing best practice kind of stuff, they're just going to throw it away because that's uh, that's what a, typically what a, what a public service provider would do. Uh, it would be considered a, a, a bogon. Uh, that is addresses mm-hmm. showing up on the wire that are not supposed to be here. And there's a bunch of those that uh, that there's there's lists for. So I would expect, yeah, you, those you, you might think it's clearing your internet gateway, but it's it's really not going to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So that would be for public instances, one that you want to associate with a public IP address and go out the internet gateway. Uh, the other class of instances you would have would be on what are called private subnets, and so these are subnets that are going to go through some sort of NAT gateway to reach the public internet. And there's essentially two types of NAT gateway that Amazon offers up. You can have their managed NAT gateway service, which you spin up usually one per availability zone, or you can go with your own man, your own NAT instances that you're sort of running yourself that are providing that network address translation. And you would probably do the same about one per availability zone to send your traffic through. And then those NAT instances or the NAT gateway would have a public IP address that they can then use to go through the internet gateway and do their thing. Now, Amazon does also have firewalls and in for many network admins that have been running their own networks for a long time, the firewall is also the NAT gateway. So are these kind of the same thing or is a NAT gateway it's a NAT gateway. It does network address translation, and that's what it does. It's not really a firewall, and we shouldn't think of it as such. It is definitely not a firewall. I would not think of it as such. There are other ways to control the ingress and egress of traffic from your VPC. So there's many some very, ways. <laughs> yes. there's, there's some very basic ACLs you can apply, but you can also deploy other firewall solutions or you can deploy Amazon's firewall solution. So that's going to depend on your unique requirements when it comes from a security perspective. But in terms of just doing that, that is all the NAT gateway service is intended to do. If you're bringing your own NAT instances, you could add some firewall functionality into those, but that's not something that's part of the native NAT gateway features. So we're talking about subnets. Our subnets exist inside of our VPCs, and we're talking about how to connect that subnet to other resources on the internet. We've talked about an internet gateway. We've talked about a NAT gateway. Now let's talk about uh, transit gateways. Um, A Mm. transit gateway is a, a complex piece. There's a lot of things that it can do. You can use it to connect to other VPCs, to your on premises networks. You can use it to connect to VPNs, like a VPN tunnel to some other site, You can, which could be for on-premises. You can use it to connect to 
direct connect circuits. And the way Amazon lays it out, they say, think of a, uh, think of a transit gateway as a hub with the items connected mm-hmm. to it as spokes. Uh, AWS would call it transit gateway. They said another way to think about it is a, a cloud router. Um, so if you, again, draw out your different resources that you want to interconnect with the transit gateway in the middle, that cloud router, and that's uh, architecturally where Amazon Amazon is positioning this uh, transit gateway. And this is sort of a new construct, Ned. I mean, not new, new, but I mean, within the last, what, two years, three years since they announced the transit gateway, something like that. About three years, I think, would be right. So in order to understand the necessity of the transit gateway, it's it's important to understand how things were done previously and how messy it could really get. So one of the most important concepts to understand is you can peer VPCs together. So I can create a connection between VPC A and VPC B, and it's a bi-directional peering connection. So instances in VPC A can talk to instances in VPC B and likewise. Which is separate from transit gateway. This is just an option yep. you have. Yeah, it's it's very simplistic just an option kind of you connection. Have. Yeah. Yes, and this existed long before the idea of a transit gateway. The thing is, if I have a peering relationship between VPCA and VPCB, and then one between VPCA and VPCC, I cannot send traffic from C to B. It will not do transitive routing across the two peering links. And that's true of basically any peering link. None of them will do transitive routing. It'll stop at A and just die. So if I want B and C to talk to each other, I have to create a third peering connection between those two VPCs. Now imagine what happens if I have 20 VPCs that I want all connected. That's a lot of peering links. You you end up having to build out a... a, a well, I was going to say a full mesh, but it's it's actually, yeah, it's more complicated than that. Everybody's going to have a direct connection to everybody else, right? That's That's a lot to manage, yeah. That is a lot to manage. And then think about connections to your on-premises environment. Well, that's also not transitive. So I'm going to have to yeah. set VPN connections from each of my VPCs. And you can see how this can quickly get extraordinarily complicated. So the transit gateway... Prior to that, there was the idea of a transit VPC where you would run basically two Cisco routers inside of it. It was very expensive. Mm -hmm. And it would do essentially what the transit gateway does today. The transit gateway was the solution to create more of a hub and spoke architecture and have the transit gateway do the transitive routing that was not possible with the peering connections that you had before. See, the Cisco product you were talking about would have been the CSR, the, the cloud services router. CS, CSR 1000V, I think, was the... I don't know if that's still the model that they use or not, but it's been a, a fun tool in a lab for sure because you could spin it up in a lab. Uh, you know, But then, uh, yeah, of course, also get it licensed and run it in a VPC to do all of that magic that you were talking about and running it mm-hmm. with uh, BGP so that you could interconnect whatever all the things were that you inter- wanted to interconnect was uh, was a big thing. I think you license it for throughput. How much data did you need to shove through the thing? Something like that. So it could yeah, get spendy awfully quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so a transit gateway, not as spendy, you would say. Not as spendy, but it still has a cost associated with having it running. And it also charges you not only for running it, but also for the data throughput that goes goes through the transit gateway. So calculating how much the transit gateway is going to cost you is going to come down to your traffic patterns as much as the number of connections that you need. 
Today's sponsor, Doit, can help you with your cloud challenges. Maybe you want to maximize your cloud use while controlling your costs. Perhaps the issue is balancing resource utilization while delivering agile IT. Maybe you just can't get good support from your cloud partners. Doit can help. An award-winning strategic partner of Google Cloud and AWS, Doit works with over 3,000 customers to save them time and money. Doit combines intelligent software with expert consultancy and unlimited support to deliver cloud at peak efficiency with ease. The Doit team knows multi-cloud, cloud analytics, optimization, governance, Kubernetes, AI, and more. Work with Doit to optimize your cloud investment so you can stay focused on business growth. Learn more at doit.com. That's D-O-I-T dot com. So we've mentioned now uh, a few different key ways to get our subnet connected, internet gateway, um, VPC peering directly one to another, something that is good for a very simple environment, does not scale well, and therefore you'd move up to a transit gateway. Are there other subnet connectivity options we need to mention, Ned? There are. So you can also create a VPN gateway. And that would be another way to connect to an on-premises environment or doesn't even have to be on-premises, just something else that can talk to a VPN gateway. My understanding is that the VPN gateway you establish in AWS will not initiate the connection. So you need something on the other side that will initiate the connection. And then they go through the whole IPsec handshake and, and set up yeah. the tunnel and everything. But I don't believe that the AWS one will initiate that. Uh, and I've run into that when you wanted to connect a VNet running in Azure with a VPN gateway and a VPC running in AWS with their VPN gateway. Neither one will start the process. So you actually have to deploy something different in one of them, like an open VPN server. So something will actually initiate the connection. Historically, that's an IPsec option. That's You can actually set the tunnel up to behave in a particular way. Anyway, I guess they're just... They're, they're insisting that they want to be <laughs> passive. Okay. If I'm using Transit Gateway, do I have to have a VPN gateway if I'm looking for VPN connectivity? You would establish the VPN gateway in the Transit Gateway to talk down to whatever your appliance is in your okay. on-prem environment. So that could be a, another spoke in your hub is a connection down to on-prem using either a VPN gateway or if you want to pony up for Direct Connect, you can also have Direct Connect connections. <laughs> Direct connects are startlingly expensive. Yes. Uh, what else, Ned? Are there any other major connectivity points we should mention? The other one uh, is the idea of VPC interface endpoints. So these are a little funky, uh, but to understand the idea behind them, when you think about how an EC2 instance in a VPC talks to any of AWS's public services, it has to send that traffic out an internet gateway to do so. So if I have an instance in a VPC and I want it to talk to S3, it's gonna go out the internet gateway and then to the S3 service. Now that's, it's gonna hit it immediately because it's not like it actually has to go out to the open internet and route back into Amazon, but it needs that connectivity there. So one of the things they did really early on was create, I think it's called a gateway interface. And that's something you could put inside your VPC that would be a connection to S3 directly without having to go out the internet gateway, which means your private EC2 instances wouldn't have to go through a NAT gateway. They mm -hmm. could just connect directly to S3. That was like pretty useful, right? Yeah, it, you know, on a much uh, smaller scale is a similar construct in, in Vulture. If I 
stand up a uh, virtual private server, not a VPC, but a VPS, and I want a multiple VPSs I have within my account to connect to each other, I can build a private network so that they can communicate. It sounds similar in that nature, rather than having to go out the public interface to talk to one another. So creating that for all the different Amazon services was going to become really onerous. There were a, a few obvious ones that they set up initially with this gateway endpoint. But as they expanded the number of services, they also had third-party providers saying, hey, I'd like to offer this service to other customers. Is there a way I can do that and sort of place an endpoint inside of their VPCs so they can talk to my service, whatever it is? And so the other solution that came about was a VPC endpoint interface, which is an elastic network interface that gets created inside your VPC and then it's connected off either to an AWS service directly or it's connected to a third party offering. So it's, it's a little bit different than the gateway because the gateway is, is kind of just like a dumb thing that connects to S3. And I think it still uses the, the public networking to do it. The VPC endpoint interface is a private link from your VPC to either the AWS service or to someone else's VPC to a network interface that they're offering a service on lots of options so uh, yes. yet one more question ned as you've spent a lot of time as a cloud architect with all of these options that are there are some of these historical more or less and have aged out and you really don't use them anymore or is there depending on the use case specific needs for all of these options that amazon is giving us i think a lot of it comes down to cost security and requirements Cost is probably going to be one of the biggest factors because running a VPC endpoint interface has a cost associated with it. You're going to be paying for the interface itself and the traffic that goes through it. So maybe if you don't need that interface or that gateway to be deployed in your VPC, you're okay going out through the internet gateway. It might end up being cheaper for you to do so. Peering between VPCs, if you're not running a particularly complex infrastructure, you don't have a ton of VPCs that need to be peered together, Transit Gateway might be overkill and cost way too much. And it might be just as easy to, to set up peering relationships between five or six different VPCs and call it a day. So I think a lot of the architecture, even the older architecture models are still valid for particular use cases. And a lot of these bigger solutions that we're talking about are for mature enterprises that have grown into a larger infrastructure need. Now, would you look at a transit gateway and say that's a bigger solution or is that pretty commonly used by everybody? I think it's a bigger solution. That hmm. It's for an enterprise size deployment. If you're just, even if you're a shop running 20 VPCs, chances are those 20 VPCs don't all need to be interconnected. You might have like two shared services VPCs that need connection to some of your other VPCs. So if that's the case, there's no need for you to stand up a transit gateway and the cost associated with it. It's only when you start really expanding your cloud real estate and you need that full mesh of networking that the transit gateway starts making sense. Also, if you're deploying across multiple regions, it might start making sense to have a transit gateway in each region and then connect those transit gateways so you can have cross-regional traffic being routed through the transit gateways. 
it becomes clear how quickly cloud costs can add up, which is one of our recurring <laughs> themes on the show is just the expense of cloud. And it, it kind of sucks that you have to pay close attention to this, but I guess that's no different from enterprise IT all along without cloud. Budget was always a constraint. How much is this going to cost me to acquire CapEx and how much is it going to cost me to run OpEx? And you always mm-hmm. got to take those things into consideration. And I've been in plenty of meetings where that discussion and the cost associated with a particular solution drove the decision. And a lot of times it was a trade-off or a compromise decision. We can't go with the Cadillac with the very best because, frankly, we can't afford it. Would it be nice? Would we benefit from it as a business? Sure. We don't have the money to get that done. For me, looking at it as an ideally like a, for network architecture, it's like, I don't care how small we are. I'm starting with a transit gateway because I can scale that thing forever. It doesn't matter how big we get, whatever craziness we need to do. I know I'm going to be able to plug anything in I need to that transit gateway and it's going to do what I want. But if it's too spendy, then there's my constraint. There's my trade-off where I'm going to make a decision to use something else that uh, sure. accomplishes the goal but saves me some money. The important thing to bear in mind is that you can always grow into it, right? It's not like I made this peering decision and I can never go over to this transit gateway. There's a migration process. It's not going to be completely seamless, (laughs) but it's going to be fairly seamless. And it's something that you can spin up on demand and do a gradual migration over and you can control it all through code. That's very different than when you had to make architectural decisions before And the cost of putting in the next bigger size router was tens of thousands of dollars. Hmm. Now it's, okay, we've grown into it. We can just start paying for it. And if it turns out we don't need it, we can migrate back. And I don't have the sunk cost of like big cap expenditure that I would have with traditional routing. It's the migration thing, though, because there's always the unforeseen (laughs) in those migration processes. And I, one of my things over the years was to... If I know we're going to grow into this thing, I'm going to put the foundation in place to just have that and not have to change it. No, we can scale without having to fundamentally have that six month to a year long project of architecting the new thing and then migrating everybody over to it and all that. And maybe with cloud, it's easier. You know, on premises was always painful with that kind of stuff because it involved things like unplugging and replugging in wires and disruptive service <laughs> changes and, right. and the such like. And uh, I know with cloud, you can just uh, you know, change change it with some automation or with a few clicks in the UI and you're, you're doing things differently now. But uh, still, there's always yeah. risk there when, uh, when that's introduced. Well, Ned, we brought up the topic of costs. We brought up the topic of money. So let's talk about what you pay for with the VPC. Um, the VPC itself, as far as I can tell from AWS, it's free. You don't pay to create VPCs. They'll let you create as many as you like. But then everything else costs money pretty much is, uh, is from what I can <laughs> pretty tell. Pretty much. So, uh, yeah. Let's talk about One IPv4 of my addresses to start. Um, yeah. IPv4 addresses, if you're using the private address space, that RFC 1918 address space, that's free. They're not charging you for that. If you're using a public IPv4 address, you are charged for that. And there's a lot of different contexts and ways in which that you are charged for it. However, if you bring your own public IP, you are not charged for it from uh, from what they're saying. So that's that's a place mm-hmm. to start uh, there. Are there any other uh, comments or gotchas on IPv4 addresses and cost net? There is a big shift that's going to occur in, I believe, March of next year. 
So previously, if you had an elastic IP, which is a public IP address that was not associated with an instance, you just had it reserved, just in case, you would get charged an hourly rate to have that elastic IP. Once it was attached to a running instance, you were no longer charged directly for that public IP address. Starting in March of next year, they're going to charge for all public IP addresses that you're using, regardless of whether they're attached or not. And that sort of goes to the fact that IPv4 address space is public address space is scarce and becoming yes. more scarce. And so AWS has to be able to afford to keep buying more address space and also justify the address space that they're currently using. So they're pushing a little bit of that pain back on the consumer and saying, well, you can always go IPv6 and then it's free again. It's not that easy. <laughs> if you're wondering about IPv4 scarcity, is that, are they just making that up? No, that that's real. There, there literally isn't any left. And the way companies are getting more is they're taking their unused IPv4 address space and it's being resold on the, mm. I was going to say the black market, but it's more like a gray market. Uh, and they're, there's a, they have a commodity value. IPv4 addresses have a value per address now where it used to be something mm -hmm. you just pay a fee for to the your regional internet registrar to have use of a block. Now you can't do that anymore because there aren't any. Um, <laughs> right. So the, the, the real impetus here is for folks to start going towards IPv6 and IPv6 address support is becoming better and better and better uh, as, as it goes. And I, I don't know where we're at with AWS and IPv6. I don't know that it's ubiquitous, universal for every service. It definitely supports IPv6, but I think we're getting closer to that, Ned. We're getting closer, but as of today, there are still services in AWS that do not speak IPv6. So if you wanted to go full IPv6 for everything, you would either have to not use those services or you'd have to run dual stack for the time being. I suspect that between now and March of next year, there's going to be a mad dash to update all of those services to fully support IPv6. Lots of other things that you pay for within a VPC. Addresses are just one thing. There's lots of other things. Uh, for example, we mentioned a NAT gateway. That's got an hourly charge and a per gigabyte charge. AWS mm -hmm. IPAM. AWS offers a, an IPAM service where you're charged per IP address that's managed by their IPAM. Um, VPC interface endpoints, which, uh, Ned mentioned earlier, you pay for those. There's an hourly charge for traffic mirroring of elastic network interfaces. So if you're using an ENI and you're doing traffic mirroring, cause you want to do some troubleshooting or something and see a copy of the traffic that's flowing through there, you're going to pay an hourly charge for that. You're charged per use of a couple of, uh, an analyzer tools. There's a reachability an analyzer and, you know, I'm trying to figure out if point A can talk to point B across my cloud infrastructure. The reachability analyzer is charged per use. Then there's a network access analyzer. Can someone get access to this thing? That's another uh, troubleshooting tool. You pay for that. Um, there's data egress charges. There's processing charges. Uh, and it can get really confusing. In fact, there are companies that specialize in helping you figure all of this stuff out and looking at your cloud architecture and your VPCs and all the rest of the services you're consuming to figure out why why is your bill so big and where is where is your spending going into what service and how can you change things in your cloud design to improve your costs so that uh, you're not spending so much. Amazon's got... I don't think, Ned, that Amazon is trying to be purposefully 
uh, obscure about how you're charged. Every single service that I clicked through explained it costs you this much per hour. It's, you know, point mm-hmm. zero zero four five dollars per hour or it's whatever it is per gigabyte. And they were very clear on it. It's just that to keep all of it in your head when there's all these little services that you're using and you're using an IP address and you're using this particular gateway and you're using this and you're using that. And now there's a data egress charge because you're moving from you know outside of your region. So now you're paying a charge where if you kept it in the region, maybe you wouldn't be paying a data egress charge and so on. So since we're not used to being billed that way historically... Uh, as IT professionals, if you're moving into cloud for the first time, I think trying to get your head around this and trying to explain to your boss or the accounting department, what's my cloud bill going to be? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's not that it's unfigurable. It's just that it's such a complicated thing to get your head around that it's hard to know exactly until you get that bill. Yes. And for someone who's relatively new to the cloud and cloud networking, it's enough of a struggle just to figure out how things should work from a technical perspective. I'm trying to move my application to a VPC and I'm trying to wrap my brain around all these different concepts when it comes to public versus private subnets, internet gateways, NAT gateways, security group rules, which we didn't even get into security groups or network ACLs. Just getting it all right technically and getting the thing actually working You're like, hallelujah, it's done. I don't care how much this cost. I finally made it all work. (laughs) But the thing is, when you have to go back and think about the cost portion of it, now that actually is a huge factor. And if you poorly design the architecture, you could end up paying way more because of the way that you built it. Um, one, One thing that a lot of folks don't realize is that traffic between two different availability zones in the same region in the same vpc has an egress charge associated with it does it because the way i read some of the aws documentation that wasn't the case so wow i didn't realize that (laughs) well here's the thing that's not always true (laughs) it depends (laughs) oh so let's say you're running amazon's rds service that's their relational database as a service and you have a primary copy in one availability zone and a standby copy in another availability zone. Because it's a managed service from AWS, there is no data transfer charge to send data between the two availability zones. However, if I have an EC2 instance in AZ1 that's talking to the RDS instance in AZ2, there is a data transfer charge for pulling that information across the availability zones. So when you're architecting your solution, you might want to put all of your active EC2 instances in the same availability zone as the primary copy of your RDS database to minimize data egress charges. (laughs) I know it sounds ridiculous, but like those are some of the architectural decisions that you have to make. Do I feel okay having all of my active requests going to a single availability zone and then failing over? in the case of an issue, or am I okay with paying the egress charges for information flowing between the two AZs? Or can I set up a read replica in one of the availability zones to lower data egress charges? It sounds esoteric, but it's the sort of thing that could save you hundreds or potentially thousands of dollars depending on your application. Wow. So, (laughs) and the thing is, if you're the IT engineer, you're probably going to be the one that's expected to understand that better than anyone else, which is which is frightening. Um, But Amazon does provide 
guides and so on. Again, I don't think they're trying to be purposefully obscure about this. They're very clear about what the charges are, but it takes some effort on your part to figure that all out. Well, Ned, we're coming up on kind of the end of the show here, but a couple other points just to make quickly. We're not going to spend much time here, but if you are coming from a networking background, there are troubleshooting tools for your VPC as well. There's monitoring and troubleshooting tools. They give you flow logs. You get IPAM, which we mentioned. Uh, there's traffic mirroring. There's the reachability analyzer. There's a network access analyzer. And there are cloud trail logs if you're interested in monitoring API calls that are made to the VPC. Those are all there uh, available to you to help you understand not just connectivity, but also access to uh, the VPC and understanding what's going on there so you can figure out what just happened or why isn't the thing happening that's supposed to happen. Lots of options there that I think you'd be familiar with. And then securing mm -hmm. your VPC, which I guess is a whole other show, Ned, honestly, to spend proper time on that. <laughs> um, yes. But I will, I, I think we should at least mention the shared responsibility model, which has come up on the show before. Um, there's security of the cloud. That's the stuff that Amazon owns, the hardware and the software that makes up the cloud. They they would say that's their problem. And then there's the security in the cloud, the stuff that you deploy in the Amazon cloud. That's your problem. And so between mm -hmm. you and Amazon, you've got the shared responsibility for security. That's how Amazon wants you to think about it. That's how they want you to understand it. Don't make the mistake of assuming, I put it in the cloud. It's secure. No, no, you, you still got to secure stuff. And there's a lot of ways to secure things for sure. I am uh, being the, 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 the big one. The um, what does I am stand for? Ned, my net, my brain just blanked out. Identity and access management. Yes, it's kind of like RBAC if you're used to uh, that from a networking perspective, role-based access mm -hmm. control. Who can do what inside of your VPC? That's not, this isn't traffic management as such. Um, this is, again, Bob is logged in and what can Bob do inside the VPC? That's what <laughs> IAM is all about at a high level. You know, you can control traffic flows through the network as well. There's different kinds of ACLs. You can uh, control things with routing tables, which is Maybe it doesn't feel secure, but I mean, if, if a routing device doesn't know how to get to some destination, eh, it's a form of security. Uh, and there are mm -hmm. firewalls where you can do traditional stateful, and there's also some stateless firewall options within AWS as well. And then there's security groups, which you mentioned, uh, Ned, which are not the same as plain old network ACLs, but kind of similar. There's a whole chart there explaining the two and how they work and what the differences are between them when you use one versus the other. And uh, again, uh, there's a whole show we should probably be devoting to securing your VPC and getting into that. Yes, there, there's a lot more there around security and also IP address management and D DNS and DHCP options. A lot of stuff we could did it, dig into, but I think we really we put a nice uh, basics and essentials even around the VPC. So these yes. these are the essential things that you might want to know about the VPC as you're going through the process of setting it up. We'll also include a link to the Amazon VPC user guide, as well as an interesting post from, the, from their blog that talks about the different data transfer costs for common architectures. Because as I mentioned, that's something that's pretty confusing. So that blog post gives concrete examples and what the data charge would actually look like for each one. Lots and lots of information there. And if you're new to all of this, you begin to understand why there are so many different certifications within the AWS <laughs> realm and different specialties that you can have, because there's that much to know. There really is one of those. The deeper you go, the deeper it gets. Well, that is all for today. Virtual high fives to you for making it all the way to the end. 
Ned and I are going to do more of these Cloud Essentials episodes over time. So if there's a topic that you want us to cover, let us know. Just fill out the request form on day2cloud.io. Look up on the title bar there and you're going to see it. You click through, you fill out the form and boom, we will have your request. Day 2 Cloud is part of the Packet Pushers Network. We have more podcasts, articles, videos, and newsletters for your professional career development, all at packetpushers.net. You can connect with all of our podcast hosts there, read blogs by industry experts, join our Slack group, and more. It's all free for you and privacy respecting. You don't have to log in or share your personal information to get to the thing that you want because vendor sponsors pay the bills and we don't have to sell them your information to do that. Outside of PacketPushers.net, you can find us on LinkedIn since uh, since X isn't isn't really the place for us like it used to be back in the day when it was Twitter and there was a bird and we all hugged and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, mm. until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.